Hello and welcome to What is Your Working Class, the podcast dedicated to exploring the variety that exists in working class identities. And today I'm joined by composer and saxophonist Jay Caperold. To stay up to date on all new episodes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at WhatIsYourWork1 and on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening and on with the episode. How you doing, love? How's it going? Good, I'm not too shabby. It's it's really, really good to see you. It's, it yeah. feels like, well, it feels like and has been an awfully long time because of this COVID think, pandemic. Yeah, I'm trying to think the last time we actually saw each other face to face. And it must have been like maybe January 2020, maybe even late 2019. I honestly can't remember. Well, it's been well over a year ago because, I mean, isn't it is today as we're recording this anyway, the 23rd of March? So a year to the day since we went into official lockdown, although I was in lockdown a wee bit before all of this stuff sort of kicked off just as a kind of precaution, because I was thinking, oh, it'll be over in about two weeks or something like yeah. that, and that'll be fine. A year later, and here we still are. It's insane. It's insane. I think I was doing a recording project <laughs> leading up to the last week of it. I think um, the uni had closed down, and they were like, okay, you can come in just to do this thing, and then you need to go, because it was being assessed. But it was literally like the day before, okay, lockdown, closing everything off. I managed to get it done. It was a nightmare, but kind of great fun at the same time because the building was dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great that we've got things like this as well that we can keep in touch. Um, And it's been been great keeping in touch for everyone over the last sort of like year. Um, It's done me a world of good just sort of like chatting to people and and just sort of like keeping in touch that way. Because God knows it's, it's... been absolutely necessary you know just for even just sort of like mental health and just trying to keep keep your body and mind healthy as well to be honest you know it's, mm. yeah I'm tempted of just jumping into a question I was going to ask later but I think we should probably start with uh just asking what is your class background well I, I would define it as working class and that's based primarily on you know the, the sort of upbringing that I've had but also on what my grandparents and parents did as jobs and their sort of backgrounds as well so you're probably talking you know three generations here of, of working classness in that sense um you know my grandparents I didn't know my dad's grandparents but certainly on my mum's side I knew them very well uh, and they were both of a working class background my gran actually was a fiercely fiercely intelligent woman and she actually wanted to go on and do law but because of her sort of economic standing she wasn't able to find the funds in order to go on to university to study um any of that sort of stuff but that's that was always my sort of like primary memory of them was her being this fiercely intelligent person and knowing that aspect to her character and just knowing that she was kind of um not not necessarily unfulfilled but it's certainly an avenue that she was never able to explore which is a real shame and I think it was her class background that stopped her from being able to to explore that avenue certainly and speaking from from my own parents you know my, my dad certainly he grew up in New Cumnock uh, which is where I, I also uh, grew up I mean he's he's as working class as they come you know he left school when he was 14 went straight into the mines at New Cumnock I think it was Noshinnock that he worked in um, so you think as a 14 year old lad going down into the pits you know that's that's kind of a, a harsh sort of like hello welcome to the world sort of thing you know mm. and then and then my mum obviously from her background from the from the grandparents that, that I knew so it's so certainly from from my parents and grandparents I would say it's, it's definitely working class but speaking about how I grew up it's I mean it's kind of a mix I suppose a wee bit it's not really 
um, just like a, a binary thing. It's not quite black and white. It's, it's kind of like grey, to be honest. You know, I grew as I said, I grew up in New Cumnock, which is an ex-mining village. Um, it's an area of like, you know, multiple deprivation, high unemployment, and it, it always has been from my memory. I think it has been for the last like, 30 years, certainly for as long as I've been alive. Certainly it was, it was one of those typical places that was decimated in the 80s um, through Thatcher and all the rest of it, you know, and it's never really quite recovered since. Um, I've got some memories of there being some form of industry uh, in the area. There was like a sweatshop in the village that a lot of women worked in in particular. Um, and you know, various other sort of like organisations like that that used to be, you know, local business in that sort of sense. But all of that, you know, from the high street being killed off um, over the last sort of like 20, 30 years or so, all of that stuff has left. So I think the, the unemployment has only gotten higher. And that, that, that was my sort of like... I suppose that was just how I, how I interpreted the world in that sense. You know, you're in a, you know, a place where all you're seeing is jobs being lost left, right and centre, you know. Um, and even now as an adult, now that I've come back to Newcomnock, you can see that not much has changed. You know, we've got Prince Charles, who's put a lot of effort and, and time and money into uh, Cumnock and Newcomnock in particular, renovating certain buildings, taking over uh, Dumfries House, which is really luckily for, for, for the local area, provided an awful lot of jobs, which is really brilliant to see, you know. But, you know, Newcomnock was a place, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody would correct me if, if I've got this wrong, but I'm sure even when I was like a teenager, it was given like the Carbuncle of the Year award, which is a really harsh, harsh award to give out to a place. Right. You know, that, that doesn't do it any favours at all. But yeah, I mean, so I suppose, yeah, I would say working class based on those sort of experiences, but certainly like how I grew up. You know, I don't think you can say that, you know, as a young kid, by playing in amongst the schemes, which is really where I grew up and where a lot of the friends that I had and sort of hung around with, like growing up in the schemes, I don't think you can say you're not working class. Like you're, you know, you've had a pretty working class upbringing, I think, if you're playing around the schemes and stuff like that. And, you know, from my own family, sort of like economic side of things, you know, we only ever bought stuff when we could afford things. And that that was instilled in me from like a really, really young age. You know, you, you don't you don't buy anything unless you've saved up the money in order to be able to afford it. Um, you know, we never went on holidays outside the UK, for example, things like that. Like things that from from chatting to other people who are of that a similar background, I feel like we kind of share those things in common. They would also identify themselves as being working class. So all I can do, I suppose, based on those kind of stereotypes, which is unfortunate because I, I don't really like the idea of basing something off of stereotypes. I think class is kind of a bit, or the class system, the way that it's kind of structured is a bit problematic because of that, because it really does rely on stereotypes. But if I, if I had to base it off of that, then I would say that I'm working class for sure. Mm. It sounds like you grew up with a real class consciousness of knowing that you were in a working class area. Was that something that you always knew that you were working class or was it something that you came to recognize after leaving or as you grew up? No, I think it's it's more so in retrospect, to be honest, you know, well, I think when you're a kid, you're just not aware of any of that sort of stuff or thinking about what you could have or didn't have or what opportunities are out there or what opportunities are potentially uh, not available to you, for example, you know, and I think that 
certainly in the schools that I was in, my primary school and also high school, they did a great job at, at telling us all that the world is our oyster, we can go on to university, none of those things are really closed off to us. And I suppose it's only in retrospect that as an adult looking back on my childhood, how I grew up, what really was available and what re what resources were actually available or in this case not available in the area, um, really sort of like hits home. You know, having lived in Glasgow for the last seven or eight years and now having moved back to this area, just seeing what is what is missing even compared to like city life, for example, um, New Cumnock and, and Cumnock is pretty rural sort of area. So there's a kind of double mix of that kind of like, it's a place of multiple deprivation, but it's also a rural area as well. Mm. So there's, there's kind of like a, a, um, a double-edged sword going on there really. And it's it's only knowing what resources are available in things like, in places like cities that um, you sort of realise what we are lacking, I suppose. But in terms of my own sort of like upbringing, you know, at, at primary school, just you're just part of, of every everybody else you know you, you don't you're not really aware of of the the differences although I would say that certainly some of my and that again this is in retrospect some of my first um interactions with the idea of differences of class um is actually oddly enough a kind of like inverted snobbery to be honest and that was based on on kids who would pick out differences in you either economically or socially and they would sort of like, I suppose, pick on that really. Um, you know, so an example I could give you would be that I remember one kid picking me up on the way that I spoke um, because my mum's from Dumfries. So she always instilled in me a, a more sort of like Dumfriesshire um, dialect rather than a Newcomnock dialect and always encouraged me to speak well, you know, rather than taking on some of the um, kind of colloquialisms of the area. Um, although I did that anyway. And it's actually later on in life that I've, I've got out of that habit again. So, I'll, but I'll, we'll probably touch on that. This, I just remember at primary school, this one kid picking me up on the way that I said the word heart. You know, it's, <laughs> in our area, you would say hurt. Yeah. You know, so you, you sort of, you almost like, instead of the, the EA becomes an E and you just drop the T entirely, you know. But I just remember that being like a, the first sort of like interaction where I was kind of going, Oh, so does that mean we've we've got some fundamental differences here? Mm. You know, then again, that that was even um, it was it was that aspect of there being differences and that kind of inverted snobbery came into play again when I think I must have been about eight or nine or something like that. Um, my mum and dad bought us a, an upright piano because I, I expressed an interest in wanting to learn piano um, from quite a young age. And they saved their money in order to be able to buy this upright piano. And me and my mum both took lessons at the same time so that we could make the most of, of this big purchase that, we've, uh, that we made. And I remember even at that time, like uh, just the fact other people knowing that we had a piano somehow made us like not working class or we were then, or I, was, I remember just being labelled a kind of posh kid, which is nuts really when you think about it, you know, how much does an upright piano cost when your parents are both working people, as most people's parents were at that time, who all they've done is just save up their money. You go, you forego um, holidays and all the rest of those kind of luxuries in order to be able to afford that. It's kind of, it, I always find that really I remember even at the time being a kid just thinking that's so unfair um, that, that we have, have tried really hard to buy this great thing and we're, we're benefiting from that but that somehow makes us 
less because it means that we've got more in that sort of sense. It was kind of, it was kind of like a weird sort of thing. I don't know. I'm sure you've had some similar experiences yourself in that regards. Musical, like musical people, if you buy an instrument, it seems you're just sort of like you're different somehow, even though you're from a certain background. Aye. I mean, my sort of musical instrument process, I mean, it's very weird. I sort of, the instrument that I play on my saxophone uh, was my mom's. And probably the only reason that I've been able to be a musician is because I knew we had a really great instrument in the house that I'd be able to pick up. Like, I don't think we would have been able to afford something like that because it's like a stupid, it's like an expensive bit of kit. So I actually started out on a lime green recorder, a translucent lime green recorder, because my mom was like, right, you're not like you're five years old. You're not getting this like four grand saxophone to play with. No, you're starting on this. And then uh, it built up to getting a keyboard and then a basic saxophone. So it was always never really anything of like, oh, he's got an instrument. That must mean he is no longer working class, but more the... um, uh, the fact that I was doing music and doing classical music as well. People were going, oh, well, that's weird. What are you doing doing that? But I completely get you on that whole inverse uh, class discrimination. And I suppose it's to do with um, familiarity more than anything else. That mm-hmm. it is, it's sort of not many people will have a piano in their house. And so to see somebody with a piano in their house that sort of goes, oh, well, that's different. That's a bit strange. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, that, it's anything that, that seems to stick out from the ordinary. And again, you know, as I, as I was saying before, that's where like the stereotypes of what mm. class is becomes really problematic, you know. And that, that goes for, I think, anyone of any class, you know, whether you're looking in on another class or whether you're part of that class and that, that's something that I've always found particularly difficult even just with regards to like my personality type if you like you know because I'm also like fundamentally a very shy person who's had to learn to become more confident and and sort of like adopt that sort of bluntness of of the culture that was around at the time particularly growing up in high school for certain you, you had to make sure that you were looking after number one um, at high school so you, you know you have to learn to be quite outgoing and and I always sort of remember that that kind of shyness was actually interpreted by say like my working class peers at that time as like aloofness mm. you know um, which made like forming friendships quite difficult because you don't fit into the same sort of categories as everyone else has growing up in that same, in that sort of way do you, do you get what I mean? Oh yeah completely I mean I can look at my sort of growing up and trying to make friends i mean i'm weird i'm flamboyant as fuck to be quite honest (laughs) and you know flamboyance isn't really i mean even in saying this flamboyance isn't a working class thing but at the same time it's about the idea of what you're familiar with what is what you're used to Mm -hmm. and i think so much of um class discrimination is limiting that idea of what a person can be because of that familiarity and a lot of that is true a lot of that is that some things are just a part of what working class culture is but it doesn't have to just be that I think it's almost Mm -hmm. people like to establish a very strict border between oh as soon as you start 
like getting piano lessons you're no longer working class which is not the case at all it complete it's a whole big mishmash of gray there's no sort of black and white clarity as you were mm-hmm. saying yeah and i think it's, it's sometimes just easier societally speaking to kind of focus in on those stereotypes because it's just simpler it just makes things a lot simpler to categorize mm. people you know i mean like you know as, as you're saying all that it's, it's sort of making me think as well about those the, the sort of like the converse of that kind of working class brashness or bluntness which again is a stereotype but they're, they're, they're also kind of stereotypes for a reason you know mm. and this is where like I'm talking about that kind of grey stuff and um, I've not quite really made up my mind about any of it to be honest and I'm still yeah. kind of like feel it, <laughs> feeling my way finding my way through it all and, and, and all the rest of it you know but certainly I can think of like some examples at even like university and things like that where because of my background as a working class person when you've adopted that kind of brashness and bluntness I suppose that's kind of been instilled through like upbringing and experiences and things like that. But you know, I've noticed that that type of that type of attitude or whatever doesn't sit well with like middle class or upper class people because it's then interpreted as a kind of aggression or mm. a sort of um, a harshness or something like that, which seems to like not sit very well. I've some I've noticed that an awful lot, particularly when I went to university, because that was really my first interactions with people who were of vastly different classes, you know, like who have had upbringings that I, I could never really have sort of like imagined at that time as a, because I, I went to university as a 17 year old and quite a naive 17 year old at that, that way. I didn't really know much about the world in, in that sense. And again, this is all just me thinking back on it. So this is all sort of like retrospective, but mm. you know, some of my sort of like first interactions at university was, was having to curtail you know, my own sort of like inherent bluntness really in uh, that sort of way or having to like soften my language or having to having to change certain aspects. Like so in, in New Cumnock in particular, we say can a lot, which means no, like to know something, I can, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I just had to completely drop that from my re- vocabulary because English people couldn't understand what I was saying, you know, because <laughs> they were constantly asking who's Ken, you know? <laughs> Which seems, it seems daft, but I mean, it's, it, it, you just have to, at some point you have to sort of like make a choice, really, I think at university in particular, and particularly an arts university, or, or an arts conservatoire in this case, music conservatoire, that if you want to get on and you want to make friends, you just have to make some concessions, yeah, which I suppose, it's... oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to agree. It's one of those weird things where, like, I had a situation recently where I went to this, um, it was this ridiculously fancy meal celebration thing by this um, organization that donates millions to musical charities. And it was in this luscious, like gold interiored hall in London that was so unassuming on the outside and everybody was obscenely posh. And I was having a conversation. There was some military personnel there and somebody who was my age, who was, in the military uh, was speaking very formally to this um i think they were an officer or a corporal or some sort of higher rank and i found myself imitating the person who is my age Mm. completely (laughs) because i was like oh my god what the hell do i do in this situation i'm so (laughs) not used to this and it it made me 
afterwards go oh my god that was why did I do that why did I choose to almost censor myself in this situation and it was I think it was to do with um wanting to fit in and to acclimate Mm -hmm. yeah like what you're talking about with university of you feel that you need to um adjust who you are in order to fit in because you are sort of coming from this outsider into this whole new world and you don't want to be like the outcast on your first day so you sort of go okay let's start easy let's just like yeah no I I can totally totally relate to that absolutely um and I I find myself doing that as well you know sort of adopting other people's affectations uh into my own personality in in, in that sense or, or even just with regards to us you know within a single conversation let's say that you you do you sort of like adopt body language you adopt um phrases and things like that and it's not I don't think that that's a manipulative thing at all you know it's it's just it's a way of well it's, it's just human interaction isn't it really and if you want to fit in sometimes you have to make those concessions but I suppose the the downside of that is that you know university should it should really be a time when you discover who you are and if your first experiences are being sort of forced into as I say, curtailing a sort of class background in order to quote unquote get on. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a compromise that you just have to make in order to survive in some sort of sense. But I would also assume that that's the exact same for someone else of middle to upper class who finds themselves in a, a, a predominantly working class environment. You know, I mean, it's it just it has to. It's like a two way street. Mm. Presumably, it has to work the same way, which is it's just it's kind of a shame really because everyone should be able to be who they are and you should be judged again it's like I can't remember who says that but you know you should be judged in the content of your character and and, you know King. uh, uh, yeah yeah yeah. and it's so so true um and although it's although obviously he's talking about a completely different topic that that to me is just a real fundamental of human interaction really you should just be judged on on the person that you are rather than where what kind of box you fit into or where you where you sit in a in a societal hierarchy completely agree uh and that's sort of the interest that i have of talking about class because so much of it is how to go against that stereotype and how to go okay no people are people Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. at the same time acknowledging the fact that there are still some barriers in place that will not allow certain people to get on as well as other people because of the benefits of their class background but you know it you can only deal with it one step at a time yeah it's sort of again it's it's that it is that sort of gray area for me though and I'm I must admit in sort of two minds about the whole thing because you know in, in order for me to sort of get on at university you have to make those concessions but actually I was kind of quite happy to do so and that's not me being ashamed of of the class that I've been brought up in or anything like that I just took that to be that that's what you have to do in order to survive and get on you know mm. but at the same time I can also see that it's a shame to have to curtail your your background in that way and, and to sort of um sort of deny aspects of yourself in order to sort of get one foot in a certain door or get one foot in another kind of door in order to sort of like forge the path that you want to whether it's career or societally or or whatever 
I don't know. I sort of like I just sort of feel that maybe that maybe there are some concessions that everyone needs to make mm. along the way, and I'm sure that there are, even for you know, say upper class people who find themselves in upper class environments in their workspaces. You know that they, I'm sure there must be certain concessions that they have to make in order to get on. It's just it's I suppose it's just how humans seem to have um, organized themselves. Yeah. You know? And I don't know, I, I could not say whether or not it's right or wrong. You know, I suppose all I can do in any scenario is just come with the experiences that I've got and just see how it pans out. <laughs> Aye. <laughs> yeah, it's that weird thing of going, okay, is class a good thing or a bad thing? And I don't think going into that sort of qualitative assessment of it is helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just better to say, well, it is. How do we, How do we work with it? Yeah, and I think that's where where being musicians, being composers and artists kind of frees you from all of that sort of stuff. Because actually, you know, if I, if I was thinking about how I would define myself now as, a, as an adult, it would probably be um, sort of classless, or at least as an outsider, certainly, because I've found myself in so many different scenarios through my work, particularly, whereby you're in work, predominantly working class environments or you're in extremely, you know, as you say, um, these sort of like gilded rooms mm. um, with, with a load of upper class people. You, you, you become a kind of a class chameleon or social chameleon and you kind of like float between them all in some sort of way, which I kind of like. And that's why I've got so many grey areas because you become more of an observer rather than a participant. Mm. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's certainly how I feel about it. I think in some ways I've become a bit of an observer, but in going back to sort of that gilded room reception scenario, um, I found myself naturally drawn to talking to the waiting staff because Mm. I had, I could tell in being a waiter uh, that I would have a lot more in common talking to them than I would with these other people. But at the same time, I noticed that they were looking at me going, what the fuck are you doing talking to us? Because I was in like, (laughs) fancy attire to match the occasion so I had a realization of going oh I'm neither suitable to the affluence that I am in or with the my class origin so it is sort of I was found myself in that gray area between being accepted somewhat in the affluent area but not uh, being accepted in my class so I was sort of in the middle of this these two different extremes of class yeah absolutely I, uh, I can I can so so relate to that because it's like I think when you become a musician or when you when you I think even more so really when you become a composer I don't know I mean that's I, I was going to probably vastly generalize there to be honest but I can only <laughs> speak from my own experience when I became a composer it, it became more helpful to me because of that sort of outsider aspect to, to the job, really. And because you're looking at things usually from a, a different perspective or at least a, a kind of removed perspective, you, you can kind of see it at, or you can take things at least at face value and then you can interpret it in your own way, which is where, all, you know, I suppose all of those problems and stereotypes uh, become quite difficult because... You can you start to see that people have problems with integrated personality types, you know. Um, and I suppose what I mean by that is that 
certainly for me anyway, you know, I believe that you can cultivate different classes within one personality type, you know, or within one person, because there's so many different aspects and nuances to the personality, you know. Um, and again, that's what, where the grey area comes in for me anyway, particularly, I think, with my own personality. And, and I would now relate that back to the, those stories that I mentioned about me being a young kid at primary school and saying heart over heart and having a piano and all that sort of stuff. It just means that I've had an, a more integrated um, experience, perhaps. So, you know, for example, like my economics would certainly be working class. My mentality is certainly working class. But my culture is middle class for sure, you know, because of my involvement in the arts, but also because my friend group now is predominantly made up of middle class people, you know, um, or, or, you know, people who would potentially have uh, have certain wages um, attached to them and things like that. So, again, unfortunately, um, it's based on the stereotypes again, but. But then again, on top of that, you know, my aspirations are more like upper class because I was always brought up to aim extremely high. And I think for me, that that means that you're more of a, a sort of like in, integrated type person, which is where the, the class system becomes really problematic, I think, because because of those sort of like stereotypes. And, and actually, I think, to be honest, like the, the, the way that we define class needs to change or it needs to at least be modernized, you know, to compensate for all of those sort of complexities um, of situations and experiences and, and how people live. In fact, I remember um, recently taking the, I don't know if you've seen it actually, you might be interested in it, um, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's like a thing on the BBC, um, which was a, a sort of a new class test that you <laughs> yeah, can take. I, I have, know have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. I... And it's like, so they've, they've come up with like new definitions and stuff. It's pretty, it is a pretty flawed a pretty flawed system, I think, because it seems to it seems to me to be based primarily more so on whether or not you own property, you know. But when I, I remember when I when I did that test, um, what did I come out as again? It was something like it was somewhere between like a, something called a new affluent worker, yeah, and then an emergent service worker or something like that, uh-huh. and they both seem to be linked to working class backgrounds in some sort of sense. But there are so many nuances that it just skims over. But it seems to at least take into account that that sort of those aspects that I was just mentioning there, the kind of like the economics, the mentality, the culture, the friend group, aspirations, all of that kind of stuff, which seems to me to be a bit more integrated, certainly, than it just being about what your parents did and how much money you've got. Aye. Yeah, I I quite like the Great British Class Survey. It's the one that was done by um, I think it was Mike Savage who led on it, who's this sociologist. But yeah, it's good because it goes into the it gives more detail into sort of the economic, the cultural and social capital that you get. Um, cultural being the hobbies and interests and ways of being that you are, and social being the networks of personnel or organizations that you are connected with. And it's better, but at the same time, and it was highlighted by you going, okay, what the hell was I actually called again? New affluent worker or emerging service worker. worker. It's sort of, I mean, the terms are better, but at the same time, nobody, I don't know anybody who has taken the test who goes, oh, I am this now. It sort of, it sort of falls back into that um, class language of working middle and upper Mm -hmm. because for a lot of people it's a lot easier and 
it's almost in that way of it simplifies it to the point of ridiculousness where you're almost admitting you know what this is so much more complex than just describing myself as working class have you ever heard of um class by jilly cooper no i haven't it's a book she wrote uh jilly cooper being famous for um (laughs) basically light erotica (laughs) (laughs) but she wrote this book called class and it's basically the most overt stereotypes of class you will ever find and it's just it goes into all these different things like marriage um work relationships dogs transport all these sort of things and it just goes into such a ridiculous stereotyping of it that you can't help but going okay this is ridiculous but at the same time it's so ridiculous there is some truth to it Mm -hmm. like you recognize it and it's sort of that case of with all stereotypes there's no smoke without fire yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, but it's uh i've been reading it at the moment it's quite interesting it's um i'd recommend people read it just for a laugh but don't take it very seriously for giving the <laughs> nuance that we're wanting from class and contemporary society but yeah it's very interesting i'll definitely um, check that out that sounds really yeah it sounds up my street actually um but it's, it's that it's that way isn't it again as you as you just said like those cliches become a cliche because they're true Mm. it's very interesting and it's it's quite old now i think it was written 1970s and maybe even earlier i think it it was written before uh the minor strikes and thatcher that sort of became Mm. a thing so you've got a very interesting period of what is class from a time period when class was maybe even a little bit clearer yeah that might be yeah. generalizing mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting i'd recommend people read it and fully knowing that it is stereotypical and it's a comedy in a way but it's interesting to say the least is like a wee mini time capsule i know this is it and you know you've just reminded me actually recently a couple of months back for the very very first time um i read great expectations and um, the charles oh, dickens yeah. which i never thought would be a book that i would ever read you know um, and and I, I don't know why I say that, you know, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like something that would be up my street, but that, that story of, of Pip and his transition from um, the kind of background, the working, you know, of that time, the working class background that he had and the kind of um, perhaps poverty that he was living in, um, you might say, and then the transition to this sort of like upper, you know, the upper crust of society, mm. And then what what he discovers as a result of of his sort of transition um, was so, so interesting. And I I can really, really see why it stood the test of time, because all of those cliches still stand pretty much today, you know. Mm. And you're only talking about something that was written about, when was it written, 18, was it 1860, something like that? I might be completely wrong. Something along those sort of lines. Those things have lasted, you know. And you sort of like, at the back of my mind when I'm reading it as well, I'm thinking like, is it a good thing that these things have lasted? You know, that you can still read a book from that long ago and discover that all of that stuff pretty much, although in a different form, still exists in, in some shape. It's kind of astounding, really. I would recommend people read that as well, to be honest, although it's a bit yeah. of 
a sort of like crusty uh, recommendation compared to your <laughs> modern erotica. <laughs> I mean, I, I probably should just have like a big list of books that people should read. I mean, I'd love to recommend people to go read. Um, I think it's Distinction by Pierre Bourdieu, which is sort of like the origins of sort of where the Great British Class Survey of Capitals and Habitus came from. But it's a complete nightmare to read. Like it's a nightmare, but very interesting. But yeah, I might I might think about doing something like a wee reading list. Anyway, that like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I would read all of those definitely because I think I, I think you know as you probably discovered, you know, I don't I don't know much about the class system. I'm only really talking primarily from experiences that I've had, you know, um, and I think that it's important to be able to put forward your experiences because that that's all part of of the mix, isn't it? Really. But I definitely do need to do a lot more um, research and reading on, you know, what what class actually means. To be honest, but I think it's it must have, have completely changed because of social media as well. Though I think, mm. and particularly, you know, as we were talking about those sort of like integrated, nuanced personalities and things, I think that's why. Certainly, for myself, um, I don't have much of a connection to social media or certainly don't interact um, on social media in a social way because it's a complete and utter minefield you know you can't say you know I feel like you just can't say anything without any anyone being jumped on these days you know or for having a, a wrong opinion and I don't think it matters what your perspective is someone will pile in on you you know and I think that that's that's definitely problematic when it comes to you know, discussions about class, particularly nuanced discussions that I think would be more beneficial to talk about with regards to class, because particularly on Twitter, for example, everything seems to be boiled down to like a binary or a stereotype or Mm. something, I think, particularly with regards to like um, the class system. It just sort of, it makes the nuanced discussion, it just kind of loses its potency or it sort of dilutes the issues, I think, especially because of the sort of characteristics that you, uh, sorry, the, the, the character limit that you have on Twitter, it just, it means that you can't even have a nuanced discussion because of the, you yeah. know, <laughs> how, how much you've actually got room to say. And so those, but unfortunately, I think you see all of these discussions taking place over Twitter. Uh, and certainly, you know, I can say sometimes I'll, I'll log onto Twitter and my newsfeed will be nothing but that, you know, people mm. having discussions about, um, class or, or other topics and no one's really reaching any sort of conclusions because it's just becoming an argument you know yeah um and sorry uh, oh no I was just gonna say I mean I don't I don't even think social media should be called social media it should be public media because I mean when you're socializing if you're out with your friends nobody's really paying attention to you unless you're making a complete um arse of yourself or unless mm. you are drawing attention to yourself whereas with social media like with facebook twitter instagram it's all about a presentation to a public like mm-hmm. you are presenting it so that it is it is a platform it is there to show stuff and i think as you were saying in order to have these sort of more nuanced discussions about class you almost need to remove the fact that you feel like everybody's watching you Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I and think that that's that's why podcasts I think can be quite powerful and I think that's why they've really taken off mm. you know in the last 10 I suppose 10 years or so really 
Um, yeah. Because that, because you can have an open and honest conversation, I think, without feeling that kind of like prejudgment in any sort of way. And you can and you can actually explain yourself um, with that. And you can go into the sort of like minutia of, of all the, the details that you really aren't able to on social media either. And I think that they can lead to more beneficial discussions in the long term. And, and also highlight some more nuanced perspectives, certainly. Um, and I hope that that's, that's the case even from this, you know, because I'm, I'm only speaking about my life experiences. I don't think I'm, or at least I hope I'm not making any prejudgments about anyone or about anyone's uh, class um, per se. Although you kind of, it's sort of like, again, it's a double-edged sword because it's nuanced, but you kind of have to make prejudgments about other people's yeah. class in order to talk about the stereotypes. To, you know, <laughs> so it's all... <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, I, I think everyone just sort of has to... Uh, there's a great line in Akala's book, Natives, uh, in the introduction, where he basically admits the fact that he is going to summarise from... And his summaries are all from his own experience. And I think that is something that is really important that we acknowledge is that most people are coming from entirely their own experience and their own baggage of coming from your own experience and that we don't have a clue how to talk about the exact detail of what is class I don't think anybody can because Mm -hmm. it is such a different thing and that goes for most subjects which are to do with how you relate to other people do you think your working classness has affected the way that you approach composing? Not particularly, or certainly not consciously, anyway. I'm not a very inherently political composer in that sense. I don't really ever gravitate towards topics that uh, rely on me talking about politics, per, uh, per se. I always like the idea that music can kind of transcend all of that and you can speak to something a bit sort of like the earthliness of, I know that that sounds quite a pretentious thing to say, but the earthliness of, you know, what we're in just now, you know, I'd rather try and talk about something a bit more, a bit more meaningful emotionally anyway, you know, that, that doesn't get too bogged down in the political. But although in having said that, you know, political perspectives are kind of ingrained in all of us and certainly class is ingrained in all of us so you never know those things and and the experiences life experiences that you have are there subliminally working away so you don't know really what is what is working away in the background and what ends up coming out through the the work that you create so again sorry to give a grey answer but it kind of is you know (laughs) I think all my answers are pretty grey because because life is is nuanced in that way you know things are things are just not black and white so I couldn't say that I am a political composer but I also couldn't say that I'm not because you never really know what what works its way through and what influences you have you know I grew up listening to an awful lot of Louis Andreessen particularly um when I was a, a teenager and all of his work seems to be you know very influenced by politics it's, it's really political music whether that has worked its way into my own musical language as political music I don't know I'd leave that for others to judge I suppose but it's certainly not a conscious thing from my perspective anyway I'm not looking to be a, a working class voice in the industry in that sense I know that there are some people who are putting themselves forward as such and and you know all, all the best to them and fair play to them and you know all the rest of it but my, my background is just my background you know I, I would rather take life experiences 
and put that into my music from all of the life experiences that I've had, mm. um, you know, and not just one aspect. Because class to me is just one aspect of, of my life. You know, there's, there's plenty of other aspects to me and my personality, hopefully. And hopefully that, that makes for a more interesting musical voice rather than focusing in on just the one aspect, you know. And I know that nowadays there seems to be, I don't want to call it a fashion, but just um, for want of a better word, it's now a fashion to kind of focus in on social issues and things like that to to, in, to influence or to to become the focus of, of one's output as a composer or a musician or whatever it is that you're working as. And that's totally fine. You know, I've got no problem with that at all. But I would also rather that that becomes integrated into what it is that we're all trying to say as artists and it doesn't become the be all and end all of what artists say at this point in time in history you know when people look back and they say oh that oh this was the um the social justice movement of artists <laughs> you know in the same way that people look back at romantic composers or you know classical composers we become the, the sort of the social justice composers or whatever you know um i'd rather we, we become a bit more we sort of transcend all of that as well it's incredibly important don't get me wrong um, and incredibly important that certain issues are dealt with so that the uh, industry can become more diversified and that we can have more voices uh, and a more diverse range of, of voices and perspectives. But actually, I think if you just focus in on your life experiences generally as a composer, you'll probably, I would assume, fix those issues anyway. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think there's a weird totality of focus on particular social issues where it almost feels like they're in a um in a vacuum in a way where it feels like it's very ostracized and condensed and it's almost if you are outside of that you cannot engage with it and it's almost sort of it's um off-putting in a lot of ways and i think I mean, in my own experience of I'm writing music that I'm exploring this idea of what is working classes and how the hell do you embody it in classical music? I mean, I'm not wanting to make write music that is just, okay, you need to be working class to get it. I just want mm -hmm. to be able to explore the idea of working classness and to give it some variety and to contribute to that idea of, oh, let's look at class and relate it to everything else and in the ways that you might not think about it but I get what you're saying I think it is um a weird period of time where we're almost where rather than going into the nuance and the difficulties of a lot of these sort of social justice subjects we're allowing them to be simplified and mm -hmm. to be almost to fit the character limit on twitter yeah, I would I would agree with that certainly. Um, it's it's just a diluting of of issues really, and I don't know if that that you know as you say becomes problematic when someone is writing a piece about that sort of topic. Mm. You know, because I've heard some some work from from other composers that that focuses in on specifically working classness, which ought to be uh, a topic that I feel I would be able to identify with and to understand what that composer's really getting at. And and to me anyway, it doesn't translate. Mm. You know, I don't really know what that 
what a musical gesture or how you make a musical gesture work in class. Aye. You know, <laughs> I don't, I just don't, I just couldn't, I can't, I can't, I can't personally fathom that. It doesn't mean that that's not valid because it's, it's, everything's valid to a composer if that's what their perspective is and that's what they're hoping to achieve through it and all the rest of it. You know, I think it's to- totally, totally valid. To me, though, I just can't sort of grasp that really. And it's sort of, again, that music for me or that type of that genre of music sort of falls into stereotypes again, unfortunately. It becomes that sort of like, if you're talking about a harsh existence, the music has to be dissonant and barren and, and bleak or whatever, no. you know. <laughs> and it's just it's sort of like, it, it, I don't want to say that it makes me cringe, but it, it makes me something along those sort of lines, you know. It's not, I'm not so offended by it that it makes me cringe. I'm not offended by it at all, in fact. But it just sort of, I just feel like the, the, there must be a more nuanced way to approach it. Um, and it's not, it's not for me to do that because I'm not putting myself out there as a composer to do that. So I suppose I'm only really speaking there as a, a listener with a kind of composer cap on in that sense. And it's, but it's difficult though. I mean, I, I can't imagine how you, how you go about that and, and what makes a work specifically political. You know, and although I said that I listened to a lot of Louis Andreessen's music, for me, maybe I just missed the point uh, in terms of what makes that music specifically political. If you strip away the context of that and, and you, you're faced with just the title alone and some abstract music underneath, what does it become? I suppose in that regards, context is everything, you know, and yeah. it really is. And so maybe it's, maybe it's the case that composers need to be very careful how they contextualise the subject matter and then the, uh, the, the music or the abstract music that they purport to represent it. And it's a really, really difficult balancing act. And, you know, I suppose that's what composers are always grappling with all the time because it's so, so difficult to, to, te- to, to say to someone, this musical object represents this thing. And if it doesn't, if that's the thing that you're putting forward as the musical idea and to an individual audience member, they say, well, I didn't get that. Then does that mean that the music's a failure as a result of that? And that goes, that goes for all sorts of things. You know, I suppose speaking for myself, I'm, I'm, I am quite a programmatic composer in that sense anyway. Although it's not necessarily important to me that an odd, like a one specific audience member really un- fully understands absolutely everything that I'm putting forward and that that therefore determines the success of the piece or not. I don't really know. I don't really have like fully formed opinions on that. I suppose I'm just sort of like thinking off the top of my head here a wee bit. I'd love to know like what, what your thoughts are on that because you're doing your PhD and all of this. I think it's... It is trying to figure out a way in order to make it so clear that that is the thing that you're talking about, where if you are talking about something that is referential and in my case, what is working classness and how to make something that is working classness, how to make it so apparent in the writing that almost if you got rid of the title, you could in some way understand that it's about class. I mean, one of the ways I'm, Uh, And this is actually something that I've got to thank to you for uh, coming up with the idea, I suppose. Uh, We were having a discussion about a piece of music that we'd listened to that was about working classness. And we both agreed this is not a really, I don't recognize the working classness of it. And uh, you made the point, well, it's hard to make an oboe sound working class. (laughs) And it just got me thinking, well, yeah, why is it so hard to make an oboe sound working class? And 
a lot of and the way I'm sort of thinking about it is of the sound of it and of the context that is attached to sounding instruments because if you think about all these different instruments that you can get like they aren't just limited to classical music and the oboe isn't either but if you think of say a guitar I don't know how many people will go oh yeah a guitar it's only classical whereas Mm -hmm. I think more people will think of an oboe and go oh an oboe is classical music rather than going oh an oboe is in Sonny and Cher I've got you babe which was my first thought when I think of an oboe (laughs) but it's and again it's sort of how you deal with stereotypes and almost unpicking the unstereotype and going oh look I this I'm fully acknowledging that I'm stereotyping in many ways I can only really go from a stereotype and unpick it I think you have Mm -hmm. to sort of acknowledge the elephant in the room and go you know what I'm probably going to have to generalize on a couple of things because Mm -hmm. I don't really want to have a situation where there'll be a, a note and you will then have like a three-page essay explaining, oh, well, this, this is why this note is particularly working class. Because yeah. nobody would engage with that because it'd be completely and utterly painful to experience and complicated. Maybe there's even a piece in that of taking the piss out of music that over-explains and how you approach the idea of knowledge and what is important to knowledge. But... Yeah, that's why I'm doing the PhD, basically, is because it's such a weird thing to try and figure out how to do. It's a fascinating topic, and it's so, you know, as you've already alluded to, it's so difficult to get that right in in music Mm. and to to sell that to an audience in particular as well. It's so, so difficult. And, you know, just, just as you mentioned, the guitar there, if you wrote a piece using, say, an electric guitar, to use another stereotype with a lot of distortion, and said that that a piece was about some form of working classness or something that would somehow because of stereotypes again perhaps Mm. maybe because of punk music or something I don't know it would somehow be more sellable to an audience in that way they would go oh right okay I can immediately accept that this musical character is an embodiment of working classness somehow whereas an oboe it's more difficult to do that but certainly I would I would um I would agree that you know that the composer's I would agree, although you didn't say it in, in, in this sort of way, but this is how I'm interpreting it anyway, is that, you know, a composer is there not to say, here is the object and this is what it is, is to go, here is an object, let's question it. Yeah. You know, and let's take it apart. So it's not that, that a composer puts forward a piece of music and says, this piece of music is about working classness and that's it. It's to say, this piece is about working classness, let's pull it apart and really discover what that is in this musical context which makes it so much harder to sell to an audience usually and I think that that's why the music that does that and potentially does it well is harder for audiences perhaps to to get into because because it's harder to put into a program not even you know as you say oh, yeah. you need like three or four pages <laughs> just to explain the damn thing yeah it's such a weird thing of trying to do and it's it is the trouble of how to be clear in what it is that you're expressing and how to make it so that other people can recognize that Mm -hmm. yeah Um, or unless it is that that composer themselves sort of encapsulates everything that working classness is like that becomes part of their 
brand identity, if you like, mm. you know, and that again sort of like touches back on that topic that we were that we were discussing earlier about sort of binariness to to characteristics, and in an industry whereby, and also in a culture whereby everything needs to be immediate it needs to be sellable straight away you need to be able to put out a tweet where you've got like one sentence and it encapsulates everything that that composer or person is about or the the idea is about it's almost necessary for someone to put themselves into a box where they say well I am a working class composer and I do x y and z and that's it you know and that's you know even thinking of, of someone although he's not sold as such, but someone like Burt Whistle, for example, who mm. is always sort of like, there's always that tagline, isn't there, that he's a gruff Northern composer. Yeah. Which is usually the thing that's said by middle-class folk <laughs> to, ex- to explain who he is and, and, and perhaps even why he is the way that he is in terms of his personality type, perhaps. But I always find that a bit like difficult as well because I don't think he's selling himself as a, as a working-class composer, although he's from like the sort of like the same kind of like, ex-mining community that I grew up in you know mm. and, and sort of playing in local bands and all that kind of stuff growing up you know that's that's all been part of like my own experiences as well but unfortunately the thing that makes that identity sellable is to say that you're a gruff northern composer or that you're a um you're a blunt scottish composer or whatever you know yeah. along those kind of lines and that's just what sells and so does that mean that if a composer puts themselves across in that way that that makes their music does it make their music more valid as a result whereas if you're someone like me who doesn't really fit into any of those categories because I'm not overtly working class in terms of how I present myself or how I speak certainly that that music is somehow not as convincing Hmm. so does that mean that I'm now I'm, I'm sort of like not really allowed to talk about these kind of topics because of the way that I present myself. I don't know. It's just it's just a question that I've sort of got at the back of my mind, you know. But the fact that I've grown up as a working class person, to me, just means that that's just inherent. That's just all part, again, of the life experience. So it doesn't really need to be touched upon. That's just sort of taken as a given. And the work doesn't necessarily have to reflect that. But it's just all part of who, who I am. It is that question of feeling... Or not even feeling, I suppose it's more acknowledging the fact that people will want to brand you Mm. as a particular kind of artist and that you produce a particular kind of work because people like to simplify their lives. They don't really want to be spending the time and energy going into, oh, well, what is the complexity of it? Because people have got shit to be doing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah absolutely yeah and I think I mean, that's oh sorry on you go. oh no uh and I think it's just in approaching that question of how you present yourself I think you can only just present yourself how you see yourself and then just see what happens and if you are going to go along the route of being somebody who approaches and says oh I am this artist and I create this sort of work you almost have an awareness of that branding that you are using and you have an awareness of how you approach that brand and you Mm -hmm. almost like play with the expectation a little bit but who knows yeah definitely and it's it's I would would say even just from my own personal perspective it's, it's something that I kind of struggle with because I don't have a very strong 
say, brand identity, at least as far as I'm aware of. I don't know what other people's perspectives of me are because I've never really bothered to ask. <laughs> but but um, the, the type of composer that I've always said that I want to be is not the composer who is being commissioned because the commissioner knows what they're going to get. I'd much, much rather be the composer who's commissioned because a commissioner doesn't know what they're going to get. That, that to me is so much more liberating and freeing creatively. You know, it means that I can say exactly what it is that I, that I want to say and not feel boxed in because of some, you know, brand identity that I've built up over the years and now have to meet in order to be successful in, in some sort of way. Um, I just find that far more liberating. What are you working on at the moment? Um, what am I working on at the moment? Well, I've just finished off uh, this flute concerto for Catherine Bryan. I've, I've mentioned that to you right. um, a couple of times. So I've finished that all off now. Um, so that's going to be um, performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and Catherine Bryan. Hopefully, when everything gets back up and running again, hopefully that will happen yeah. uh, in their upcoming season. But fingers crossed, all of that stuff um, you know, pulls through. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed, really. I mean, because the start of lockdown, it was just the emails left, right and centre of like cancellations. And so you basically spent a year just hoping that the projects that we had planned are, are going to see see themselves through. But I've been quite fortunate, I must admit, during lockdown that the phone has rung. And I've been working with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra on their Notes from Scotland project, which is involved with young composers um, and seeing them through their writing process um, as they're writing pieces for the RSNO musicians uh, and a showcase that will hopefully go ahead in the coming months. And then also working with the RSNO Community Orchestra as well, which is another uh, exciting project that I'm in, uh, involved in, whereby we've we've done everything over Zoom um, and we're trying to piece together a new piece that I've, I've, re I've written uh, for the Community Orchestra. Um, that's going to be performed as a, as a collective thing. So they're going to pull all of these individual um, recordings that everyone's made from their own homes and then make an, a, a full orchestral piece. So I think there's something like 60 to 70 people involved in that. Um, and it's, it's people who are um, of varying like ability levels, which I love as well, because it means that everyone can really properly get involved in it. So in that writing process, I had to write a, a flute line that could be played by someone, you know, of, of sort of like grade four to five sort of level, and then various other parts underneath those lines that pertain to sort of like beginner level or sort of like grade one to three sort of level and things like that. So it was it was fun to sort of piece all that together. I'm really really looking forward to to hearing mm. the, the results of that because they've been working on that for the last uh, couple of months, sort of piecing it together with the conductor uh, Michael Repper. Uh, who's based in New York, uh, and he was one of the first people to to do those sort of like, or I'm sure you've seen them, those orchestral projects where there's like various people playing in the different rooms, and they've all got them as wee boxes on screen on YouTube right. and stuff like that. So he was one of the first to be involved in those projects. So and he's he's an absolute firecracker as well. You know, he's he's such a an, an inspiring person to be around, and he's really energizing, which I think is really important given everything that's going on just now. I think um, we need people like that to sort of keep us all going. <laughs> uh, where can people find your work? Well, they can find my work on my website, jcaprog.com. I've actually just released uh, a new online store um, as part of that. So I'm start I've just taken that step to self-publish my music, which is a really exciting step, um, quite mm. nerve-wracking as well, because you're hoping that it finds people um, <laughs> and, that, and that people also um, 
you know, find an interest or a common interest in your music that they then want to buy it and, and hopefully perform it at some stage once everything gets back up and running again. So um, my, my solo material, my duo material and some of my choral work um, are being sold on my website as well. So I would encourage people to, to go and check that out if they're, if they're looking for some new music um, from, from a working class composer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, thank you so much for talking to me. We've been talking for ages now. Really well, thanks on. very much for yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to chat this through, and actually, it's it's solidified a lot of ideas for me because you know, as I said at the very start, I don't really have solidified opinions about this. But it's uh, yeah, talking to you has really really helped me. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, all, thanks for thanks for being here. <laughs> and that is the episode. I'd like to thank Jay for talking about his working classness, and for you for listening to this episode of What Is Your Working Class. Just to remind you to follow us on Twitter at What Is Your Work One and on your chosen podcast provider for all new episodes. And thank you very much for listening, and hopefully hear from me soon.